Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Could you say that in Spanish? I Given cannot. You just, got, you, you just got back from Mexico. You were in Mexico for a week, recovering. Not not relaxing, not vacationing, but recovering <laughs> from StarCast. So I'm just wondering, did you pick up any Spanish other than uh, Cerveza, por favor? No, I did not. Uh, I didn't see any humans. It was just me and the wife. And, uh, every morning a lady would come make us breakfast and that was it. That was the end of my human interaction. So I guess I learned please. And thank you. But that's about it. So, wh- so where did you go? Uh, I went just outside of Cabo. We rented out, we rented a house just outside of Cabo, like a private residence. So it wasn't like a hotel or anything. So I didn't have any. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. Like walk around in my underwear, float around the pool, do what I want. So did you see any like massive, you know, drug cartel cartel deals go bad or any of that crazy shit that we keep happening about hearing about that happens in Mexico? Surprise. No, of course not. No, no. It was cool, calm, relaxing. I'm not going to say it was cool or calm. Uh, I burned all the skin off my nose, but, but I lived, uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely relaxing. You know, I lost track of time a little bit. Uh, didn't wear a watch, which as you know, is new for me and put my phone down and, uh, tried to play catch up. What's, uh, what's recovery from Starcast been like for you? Just another weekend, huh? You know, Conrad, I have to say that my Starcast weekend <clears throat> and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted in terms of how I feel about it because you know, when I heard Starcast, you know, two was going on in Vegas, of course, you know, I get all excited about going to Vegas and thinking about all the great things I'm going to do and all the fun I'm going to have. And honestly, and this is almost embarrassing. I'm, this is the part that I'm conflicted about admitting. I relaxed more in Las Vegas than I probably do when I'm home. I was in bed by nine o'clock every freaking night. I hate you. I didn't do any of the things that I thought I was going to do when I got to Vegas. I mean, I had all kinds of decadent plans. I was going to party it up because you never know at this stage of my life. I'm thinking, well, this may be the last time I go to Las Vegas and really have a chance to, you know, live it up. And I got to Las Vegas and I hung out with Sonny Ono and I hung out with, with Stevie Ray and Scott Norton and Ernest Miller and Scott Norton's wife, Tammy and road warrior animal. And that was like the highlight. And we were done by nine o'clock. It, it, it was such a calm and re- I was up by six 30 every morning. I wasn't over. <laughs> I wasn't out partying. I didn't go to the Betty boot bar or whatever the fuck it's called now at the MGM grand. I'm sure it's called something else. I didn't do any of the things that I thought I was going to do. I was in bed between eight 30 and nine o'clock every night. How bizarre is that? Yeah. That's not what I expected. I really did expect to, uh, hear you talking about the Betty boot bar, trying to pick up chicks over there or something. No, I had all kinds of crazy plans. I thought, you know, I'm, this is a chance for me to get to Vegas and, you know, throw myself back in time and party it up and do all the crazy shit that Vegas has to offer. I did nothing, nothing. Sonny and Julie, his wife, took me out to sushi dinner Saturday night. It was a Friday night or Saturday night, one of the nights. We went out to sushi one night. I took them out to dinner the next night, and that was it. That was it. I'm I'm really feeling old. I feel my age at this point. 
Well, if you missed all the fun in Las Vegas, you can still make it happen at starcastonfight.com. The replays are available. They're in high def. They're unlimited. Uh, so when you download this, you've got it for life. It's starcastonfight.com or just check it out at fight.tv. Lots of fun panels, including one on the Nitro book, which I recently covered here on the show with Guy Evans and a whole host of folks who work behind the scenes in WCW. So what are you waiting on? Go check out what the world is still talking about. Starcast on fight.com. All right, Eric, let's get into it. We're doing a Q and a episode this week. We like to call it ask Eric anything. And we've got a bunch of good questions here. Eric, are you ready? Fire it up, brother. Fire it up. Michael Hankinson wants to know at what point did you realize there were too many members of the NWO? Towards the end of 1998, when I realized that I was going to have a really difficult time effectively splitting the brands between thunder and nitro we we kind of had the handcuffs put on us financially uh and we just weren't able to do the job that i knew we needed to do in order to effectively create two separate brands and at that point i'd already built the nwo up anticipating a split and realized it wasn't really going to happen the way i wanted it to but yet I had all this NWO talent, you know, roster built up. So it was towards the end of 98. Uh, this is an interesting question. And we got lots of variations of this one. Um, just Scott is one of the folks who wrote in. You've said on several episodes that you were setting up WCW versus NWO to ultimately be two separate brands on the two separate shows. What happened that prevented WCW Thunder and NWO Nitro from being a reality. And this is kind of connected to the first question, but you know, when you when you decide, for example, to have two separate brands, two different marketing campaigns, two different promotional campaigns, two two different branding campaigns, all of that costs money. And then when you've budgeted for that, and that budget has been approved a year in advance, and then all of a sudden two or three or four months before the budget is reallocated and you don't have the money to do what you need to do in order to do it. Well, that causes an issue. And that's really what happened. Let's keep it going here with AJ Kirsch is hypothetically, if AEW offered you a position as say an executive producer, would you take it? If the role of executive producer wouldn't pique your interest, is there a position that would you know, that's such a, that's such a hard question to answer. <clears throat> Obviously any opportunity in, in a business that I've been involved in, you know, for the past 30 or 32 years would get my interest. Um, it, you know, so much of it depends on what I don't know, you know, what are a and AEW's goals? You know, what, what's their strategy? What are their plans? You know, what's their five-year business plan? I've, I've learned the hard way that if you really don't have a plan that's been well vetted and really thought through, the chances of being successful are minimal. And I really wouldn't want to be involved in something that wasn't really well planned. Now, that being said, if it was really well planned and it was a great strategy and a business plan in place that made sense that I could you know, relate to or identify with or feel com- comfortable with, of course, you know, I'm look, you know, I'm, I may be 64 years old 
and I may have been in the business for 32 years or more, but there's a part of me that is passionate about the business. I love the creative side. I love the strategy of building things from scratch. So that's very appealing to me, but I, I really wouldn't want to get involved with something, no matter and I'm, whether it's AEW or anything else. If it's not well-funded, if there's not a really, really smart business plan attached to it, the chances of it being successful five or ten years from now are pretty minimal. And I just, I really would, would have a hard time getting excited about something that really wasn't thought through and there wasn't a solid plan. Flip side of that, like I said, if there was, oh, hell yeah. Uh, Liam wants to know, what was your first reaction upon hearing your WWE theme song? I kind of dug it. You know, I wish I would have sung it myself. I think I could have pulled that off. <laughs> but no, I, I, I dug it. You know, they, like so many of the WWE theme songs during that period of time, and even prior to me coming in, obviously, you know, that really helped identify the character in a way, I mean, if you listen to the lyrics and, you know, the, the vibe of the music, it really, really helped identify the character. And I think my, my music, um, hats off to Jim Johnson, probably did as great of a job of not only being cool music that got everybody up and got everybody excited, you know, during an entrance, but it also, in its own way, defined the character. And, and I think that's, you know, what made... Jim Johnson so spectacular. You know, it's one thing to have great music. You can, you can rip off music. You can license music, like I did with you know Hulk Hogan and Jimi Hendrix. There's all kinds of ways that you can come up with the you know with great music that really adds to the character and builds anticipation. But when you have to write it yourself, you know that takes a real talent. And like a, you know, hats off to Jim Johnson. But it, it, as it relates to my music in WWE, I thought it was about as perfect as it could be. No arguing that. I mean, they really, they nailed it for you. Gary wants to know question for both of you. What is your best advice to look for when hiring people to work for you? Um, I put passion and intensity, like number one experience in a feel for the business is number two. Number three is integrity and honesty. You know, you, you, I've said this before in different ways. I can work with people that I don't like. I have no problem working with people that I'm, you know, I don't hang out with or I don't socialize with, and, and I respect them and we work well together and things like that. So, you know, being someone I like isn't a prerequisite. Being someone I trust is, and. You know, that, that's right up there, probably closer to the top. Jeff wants to know in a recent interview with Chris Jericho, Dave Meltzer said that you were given two weeks to get a TV deal before Turner sold WCW to McMahon. Is this true? No, it's not. It's, it's a typical version of the truth that that's been highly manipulated and, and part of the narrative. Look, I had a, a good relationship with Peter Liguri. Peter Liguri was the head of FX. Kevin Riley was right underneath him. I'd had many conversations with both Peter Liguri and Kevin Riley at FX. 
about doing something and moving one of the brands over to FX. But those conversations all took place six months or so before we ever attempted to buy WCW. So there was, you know, while I had a great relationship with them and actually subsequently sold the series to WGM, which Peter Liguri was overseeing at the time. And that was just about a year and a half or two years ago um, called Outlaw Country. But those conversations about WCW and moving one of the brands over to FX had already matured and they didn't work out. Now, what did happen, and this is, you know, the typical kernel of truth that one will find in Dave Meltzer's reporting on things, is that when things started to unwind for the acquisition of WCW, I did have a conversation with Brad Siegel. And it was a very short conversation. But Brad said to me, look, TNT really wants to get a secondary run on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was a Fox property. And Brad said to me, hey, if you think there's a way that you could negotiate Buffy the Vampire Slayer into an FX deal and salvage this, we're open. And that was, you know, that that got tossed out to be like within 48 hours of the deal closing with WWF at the time. And I, I, I think I made one phone call, and it was just there was no way to put that deal together. But there, there was there was no two week deadline or whatever Dave reported wasn't true. The only thing that was true is Brad Siegel thought that perhaps if I could get the rights to Buffy the Vampire Slayer for TNT, that there may be a way to revisit the conversation. But that that lasted about five minutes. Josh Kuhn wants to know what would have been Eric's five man WCW team to take on the WWE from the Monday night wars era. So let's pretend for a minute that the invasion angle, which we're going to cover very soon here on the show, stay tuned for dates on that. We'll, we'll run through it in a little bit, but let's pretend for a minute that you guys were going to do some sort of joint show and you're going to have five on five in the main event. We'll call it 1998 late 1998 and they've got their best five. You've got your best five. Who would your best five have been? That's a great question. That's not Matt Coon, right? No, no, this is someone we like. This is Josh Coon. All right. Not that big old dipshit. All right. So I would go late 98. I had to put Goldberg on top. I would have put Mach in there. Yep. Because he'd have told a great story. I had to put Jericho in there because he would have blown everybody away. Didn't see that one. Didn't see that one. Why not? He had great matches. I don't know. Just no flair, no Hogan, no DDP, no Nash, no Sting. Fuck, I'm not done yet, brother. I'm just saying you listed Jericho before any of those. I'm, I'm shocked. Well. I'm not putting them in any particular order for fuck's sake. I'm just. All right. Give me the other two names, Jack. This is off the top of my mind. (laughs) You didn't give me that. You didn't give me these questions in advance, brother. I'm just kind of, this is top of mind. So I would have gone Jericho for the action. Um, Okay. What have we got? Three so far. Yeah. I've got two more, two more. I would have had to put in DDP because he was hot as shit then. Okay. And I would have thrown Ray Mysterio in there. For my fire. Holy shit. All right. Lots of new answers from you today. I did not expect that brother. Uh, what did you expect? What did you expect? Come on. Tell me Hulk Hogan. 
I mean, I, I, I would have thought you would have went Hulk Hogan, um, Goldberg, Kevin Nash, Macho Man, DDP. That's who I thought your five would have been. No, but you know, again, if you're going head to head against, you know, WWF at that time, everybody, you know, Hulk Hogan was Hulk. Hulk Hogan's, he's an entity upon himself. Right. There would have been no need to tag him in. Um, it would have been, let's blow him away time. And I think that roster that I just went through would have blown him away. All right. Next up, we've got this is a fun one. Lots of variations of this. Matt Maloney wants to know what part of running WCW is the most satisfying for you. And he means specifically when you had WCW at its most intense peak, how did that make you feel? What did it mean to you personally? You know, talk us through sort of. And I, you and I have talked about this a lot. You, you sort of just did day by day. And now this experiment you and I are doing these 83 weeks shows that we're doing together, you get to go back and revisit some of these really proud moments of your life that maybe you weren't slowing down enough to sort of smell the roses back in the day. It's very true. When I look back at it now, especially after doing this podcast with you for the last year or so, um, because it, it, it allows me, it gives me the privilege or the advantage to look back at things in a much different way. Right. Um, if I'm really honest with myself, it, the most satisfying part of it for me wasn't when we were at our peak, it was figuring out a way to get there. I've always loved building things Mm -hmm. when you can take an idea or I hate to use the word vision because it's overused. But when you when you have a picture in your head of what you think something can be and and you may get that, you know, I'll speak for myself. I may get that picture at a restaurant while I'm you know in the middle of breakfast or if I'm on a treadmill or I'm walking my dog or, you know, reading a book or whatever it is. You when you get an idea, that's just an idea. And then you start massaging that idea and building upon that idea until it becomes something more than just a thought. And it's actually like a blueprint. And you think it through in enough detail, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. When it becomes that granular and clear to you in your mind, it literally is. I've always used this analogy. It's a little bit like an architect sitting down and just imagining just using your imagination and coming up with a blueprint for the coolest house, the coolest building, the coolest cabin, whatever it is. But it, it all starts in your head. And when those thoughts in your head begin to make sense on paper, and then as you execute those thoughts that are on paper and you start seeing them on television and they start manifesting and the audience reacts to them, it that is a very very cool feeling. I mean, you know, other than great sex, I Mm. can't think of anything that gets me more excited than to build just a nascent idea, just a random idea. What if, those are my two favorite words. What if, what if we do this? And you know, if if you start, if, if you go into a creative process or you're just riffing and sitting around a room going, okay, how do we make this bigger than it's ever been? How do we shift the audience's thoughts or perception from who we are to what we want them to perceive us to be? Whatever the challenge is creatively, 
when you sit around in a room and you start out with a blank piece of paper and the fir- the way you open that conversation up and collaboration up is what if that's that that to me is so exciting and that process is so exciting and that that was the the process that I I got most excited about when we launched Nitro because I had a gun to my head it, again I've said this a million times Nitro, you know, going head to head with WWF at the time was not my idea. That was Ted Turner's idea. I just had to execute on it. And when you have that kind of pressure to execute on, you know, a challenge that, that is that, you know, daunting, you know, t- to go in a room and say, okay, what if? How do I do this? What if I do this? What if I do that? Two most powerful questions in the universe are what if? And I miss that. You know, I, I miss. I miss starting from scratch and building something, or, or, you know, even if it's not starting from scratch, if you get a, you know, a, a piece of talent in that you didn't know was going to, I hate to say piece of talent, it makes them sound like a side of beef, but if you get a, you know, an opportunity to work with a talent that's brand new to your company, you, you know, when you sit down and go, okay, what if we do this? That 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 what if process is what I miss the most. Well, now we get to do it here on the show. And, and my question is, what if you want to get your dick real hard? Well, you go to bluechew.com. You see, bluechew offers a performance enhancement in the bedroom for men. At bluechew.com, you can get the world's first chewables with the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. And as you know from listening to the show, chewables can work faster than pills. And the chewables from bluechew can be taken on a full or an empty stomach. And an online physician console is free. So it's cheaper to use than those other two. And it only takes a few minutes to connect with a bluechew.com affiliated physician. And if you qualify, you get prescribed online very quickly. No in-person doctor visit, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at a pharmacy. And it ships directly to your door in discreet packaging. These chewables from bluechew.com are prescribed online by a doctor. Of course, and made right here in the USA. Bluetooth is going to give you the confidence you need in bed every time. Both you and your partner will love it. So what are you waiting for? Chew it and do it. And we've got a great deal for you guys. Visit bluechew.com and get your first order for free when you use our promo code 83 weeks. Just pay the $5 shipping. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. And our promo code is 83 weeks. Join the Chew World Order and chew it and do it with Bluetooth. Uh, w- that was awesome. That was awesome. I had a whole Bluetooth Ninja thing that I was going to do this week, but I'm going to save it for next week because <laughs> yours is way better. You know, because ninjas are really good at sneaking up on you and doing amazing, you know, work when you least expect it. And that, that I mean, that's how I feel about Bluetooth. It's just like all Wait, of a sudden on. you were so on your game. But I like your I like your read better. I'm going to save my Chew Ninja till next week. Yeah. Tune in next week. We're going to hear about hard dick ninjas right here on 83 weeks. <laughs> um, WBW mania writes, I'm always too late. I've asked this a few times, but it hasn't been answered yet. Why didn't the commentators make more of Hulk Hogan, <laughs> Hulk Hogan, easy for me to say, hulking up at uncensored 99 when he hadn't done it since 1996. That's sort of, sort of interesting. I guess we should mention that. This uncensored 99, and I'm sure you probably don't remember that, but the jam is this is the barbed wire fence, the barbed wire steel cage match that we covered earlier this year with Ric Flair and Hollywood Hogan. 
and it's a first blood match. And well, there's just a lot of shenanigans going on. Arn, David Flair, Stacy Keebler, and we start to see Hulk Hogan out of nowhere do the old school Hulk up. And we haven't seen that since he was a good guy in 1996. Yeah, I'm not really sure I was too involved in that. I mean, if it's uncensored 99, right? Mm -hmm. What month would that be? March. You were there. Uh, I was, but that was really early, and I was kind of planning on what I was going to be doing two months from then, not that particular pay-per-view. So I'm I'm only going to take so much heat for that or responsibility for it. I'm guessing there just was not a lot of coherent thought in creative because that was a moment. That, that's a really good question, by the way. And it's a good note. You know, if if someone was, you know, looking at a script for this particular pay-per-view and in that script there wasn't some kind of note about really focusing on that and making that a big moment because it should have been to, to the listener's credit for picking up on that. If that note would have not been in there, that would have been a real, real mistake. Um, but honestly, I don't think I was involved with laying out that pay-per-view, even though technically I was there. I think I was there like for a month. But my goal at that point was looking two or three months ahead, not at that particular pay-per-view. Josh McCarty wants to know, I've always liked the Battle Bowl concept and still think of Starcade 91 as one of the more rewatchable shows. By the way, you're the only one, Josh. Was there ever any consideration to bringing it back after 1995 or was the lack of true stakes, a deal breaker for that match concept? Stakes was always a, an issue for me, even more so now, you know, I was beginning to understand really at a very nascent level was beginning to understand just how important stakes are in any kind of matchup. And the lack of stakes and the randomness of it. I mean, I like the idea of it. You know, it was a spectacle. It was different. There was a lot of reasons why. That was a Dusty Rhodes thing. There was a lot of reasons why it was a great concept, but it kind of falls into that gimmick match category. And this is the problem I've always had consistently with gimmick matches is they tend to lean heavily on the gimmick. And the more heavily you lean on a gimmick, the less emphasis you put on personal stakes and it's subliminal, you know, people don't, especially wrestling people, because wrestling, this is, this is the problem with wrestling people writing wrestling is because, because wrestling people tend to think about the high spots, the moment, the reaction. And those are all important things. I'm not suggesting they're not. They, they meaning wrestling people tend not to think about the episodic nature of it, of whatever they're producing. And when you start producing content that is emphasizing something that's unique, that's different, that's random, that's a gimmick match, you kind of forget to think about the episodic nature of it. Where does it go from here? That was one of, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to be, I'm tired of beating up on people, especially the same people over and over again, because it just gets redundant for me and, and I'm sure the listeners. So I don't mean this to sound like a critique of anybody, but 
it's easy to produce one really cool big event and then worry about what you're going to do next week or the week after or the month after or the month after that down the road. That's typical wrestling kind of writing, if you will. Vince Russo was probably more guilty of that than anybody that I've worked with. Um, and it, those, those types of events that are like all about the spectacle, all about the gimmick, with really no story going into it, really no stakes attached to it, you get done with it and people go, wow, that was crazy, that was good. And then when you're done with it, you're, you're literally almost starting from scratch because you haven't built towards anything. And if, and if you try to piece it together after the fact, you're really piecing a story together after the fact as, a, as an afterthought, not, not as something that you plan for. So Battle Bowl to me was one of those great spectacles. It was a really cool event and there was a reason to do it. And I understand the reason to do it at the time uh, because, you know, going back to some of the podcasts that you and I have done before, it's really important that each pay-per-view has its own personality. So people, you know, like Royal Rumble does, or obviously WrestleMania is WrestleMania. That's, that's kind of a standalone. But, you know, so many of the other pay-per-views that we're familiar with are tent poles. They're, they're pay-per-views that everybody already kind of understands the format and what it's going to be like. And Battle Bowl was designed to be that. But unfortunately, it didn't lend itself to anything prior to or after the fact. So... I could spend about 45 minutes talking about that, but I hope that's clear. Seth has a good question here. He wants to know how did spring stampede 94 almost, if not actually sell out the Rosemont horizon, considering the poor houses that were commonplace in WCW in that year, Hogan had not yet come in. You know, hats off to Zane Bresloff and Gary Jester and whoever else was working in, you know, marketing and promoting that event. You know, Chicago is a great wrestling town. Spring Stampede for a while was a pretty cool event, had its own personality, thanks to Dusty, and it was a spectacle. Um, so I would, I would have to point to those factors. All right, Eric, we've got a question here about your dog, and I know you're excited to talk about your dog, but your dog isn't an annoying pest. And here in the summertime, our houses are filled with these annoying pests, flies and other insects. And who knows where those flies were last? The fly that just landed on your sandwich could have been anywhere. Another piece of food or, well, just think about it. So I know where the, I know where those flies, those flies were out in my horse pasture eating horse shit before they flew into my house. I know exactly where they were. Probably. Okay. Well, uh, well, on that note, we'd like to thank our sponsors over at Dynatrap. Dynatrap is the leading manufacturer of outdoor mosquitoes and insect traps. And now they've come up with a solution for indoor pests. The Dynatrap fly light. The Dynatrap fly light works day and night to attract and trap flies, fruit flies, mosquitoes, and other pesky insects. And I've got to say, it really works. Forget about those disgusting fly traps. Use the Dynatrap fly light. This thing looks like a subtle night light that plugs into an indoor outlet. It's not just an ugly piece of sticky tape with dead bugs all over it. Trust me, I've been using the Dynatrap fly light for a few weeks now. And it's insane the number of insects it's caught that would otherwise be buzzing around my house. Get yours at Dynatrap.com. I want to spell that for you. It's D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com and enter our promo code 83 weeks and you're going to receive 15% off of any of their products. That's Dynatrap. You know what, though, you know what Conrad? This is such a great offer where, because where I live here in Wyoming, we get flies out here that could pick up small children and carry them away. 
I mean, our fly, <laughs> I don't have any mosquitoes, but the flies out here are like, you know, scary. They're huge. You need a you need to be Jim Cornette with a tennis racket to fight off these flies. I was watching something on uh, YouTube today about Jim Cornette talking about how he, you know, cracked some some kid that jumped the rail on the head with a tennis racket, split his head open, and I'm thinking that's how I feel about the flies out here sometimes. So, trust me, fly control, pest control, it's a big damn deal. Unless you can have Jim Cornette hanging around your house with a tennis racket, you actually need this product. Go get it. Dynatrap.com. D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Dynatrap is the safe, silent, and simple solution to household insect control. Dynatrap.com. Use that promo code 83 weeks. Let's keep it moving here. Christian wants to know if WCW had won the Monday night wars, how would you have done the invasion angle? Or would you have at least had some other plan? Now we're going to talk about this invasion show soon enough. I guess we should mention now that we've already got our, our schedule mapped out. Like we know what we're going to cover and when we're going to cover it. Uh, and I guess I should just go ahead and tell everybody now that we've already got an invasion show scheduled. Uh, I can't believe we're really doing this, but we are on July 22nd. We're going to sit down and watch the WWF's invasion pay-per-view. And it's going to be a watch along where Eric, I believe you'll watch that show for the very first time. Do I have that right? Yep. And, and we'll get to sort of break down an armchair quarterback, you know, what that might look like. Um, so in the meantime, I'll give you the the rundown next week on June 10th, we're going to do a June 10th, 1996 nitro watch along. This is going to be when Kevin Nash shows up. We've recently talked about when Scott Hall showed up, of course, and everything changed. Well, we haven't done the Kevin Nash episodes. We're going to do that on June 10th. On June 17th, we're going to cover the great American bash 1999. On June 24th, we're going to cover clash of the champions 27, where Ric Flair and sting meet to unify the world title. You may recall they had the belt that Vader wore as the world champion. And they also had the big gold belt by this point. So they combined them both here at clash 27 on July 1st. We'll revisit bash at the beach, 1998 on top. There is the biggest main event of the year. As far as pay-per-view buys go, it's diamond Dallas page and, um, Carl Malone taking on Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman. The following week, we're going to do something a little different. It's the July 6th, 1998 raw, and we're going to do it as a watch along. So you might be wondering, why are we watching raw? That's the day where Hulk Hogan lost the world title to Bill Goldberg on nitro. So we want to examine what Eric's thoughts are on what the competition aired, which famously you may remember is happening during brawl for all. And it's also when they did the DX parody of the nation. Uh, so it'll be interesting to get Eric's take there. July 15th, we'll cover bash at the beach, 1999, where Kevin Nash would team up with sting to take on Randy Savage and Sid. Then of course that invasion show on the 22nd of July. And then we'll wind down July on the 29th. When we cover the big, bad booty daddy, Scott Steiner and WCW. And what a story Scott had when I run through the upcoming lineup here, what jumps out at you? I need to do my homework. <laughs> it's a lot of great material there that, that deserves a lot of thought and research. So I'll be, fortunately, I have plenty of time to go back and, and revisit, you know, not only those pay-per-views and those matches that you're talking about, but also all the things that were leading up to them. Cause that period of time to me, and I think to many wrestling fans, 
97, 98 was one of the most exciting times in, in our business. And so many things changed so quickly. So it'll be fun to go back and look at it. It will be fun. We hope you join us here. If you've got some suggestions for what we'd like to see on the show, you can always participate on Twitter at 83 weeks. Um, Michael wants to know about this dog though. How did you come to get a blue healer? Did you see one somewhere? What made you love them so much? Of course, a blue healer is the breed of dog that you have. And you've talked about your dog a lot here on the show. Chat me up. Okay. So a blue healer is also known as the breed is actually registered with American Kennel Club as an Australian cattle dog, but they're often referred to as either blue healers or red healers, depending on the coloration, obviously. The healer aspect of it is because they're, these dogs, the healers, Australian cattle dogs, red or blue, were bred for the Australian outback back in, God, I'm going to get my timelines wrong, but probably the 20s and the 30s when a, the, the cattle business was really blowing up in Australia. But they needed a really tough dog, a, a dog that could withstand extreme temperature conditions, hot and cold, a dog that was physically stuff, tough that could, you know, get kicked in the head by a, by a cow and still keep going that had a, an amazing amount of endurance and had a natural herding instinct. And the breeder, and I, I can't remember his name, but the original breeder of the Australian catalog or blue healer used the Australian dingo, which was basically an Australian version of, of a coyote, um, a Kelpie, which is a English breeding or excuse me, a herding breed. Um, and I think it's Australian Shepherds. And there was actually a little bit of Dalmatian mixed into the breed as well. And the individual that, that was experimenting with this breed kept trying different combinations and breeding different pairs till they came up with this dog that is now registered with the American Kennel Club as an Australian cattle dog. But it's really a mix of the Australian Dingo, which is a wild dog, and that's where it gets its toughness and its instinct from, protectiveness from, loyalty from. And then the, the, the herding instinct probably comes from the, the English Kelpie or Australian, or excuse me, or, or English Shepherd, I guess, is another term. <clears throat> but it's that combination that made these dogs so great. Now, in, in terms of where my first exposure came about 1991 or 1992 when I brought my kids. We were living in Atlanta. I brought my wife and kids out to Wyoming for a, a week or so, and I took them up on a horseback ride up into the wilderness with a guide, and the guide had an Australian cattle dog. And I watched closely, because I've always been a big fan of dogs, and I've always loved dogs, but I've, I've always been interested in the different kind of psychology or the characteristics of different kinds of breeds. And I was watching this particular dog that took us out on this guided horseback ride, and he was so protective, and he was always out in front. And where I live, up in the mountains, there's a lot of grizzly bears. And these dogs are fearless. My 50-pound Australian cattle dog will fuck with a grizzly all day long. They have no fear. And so much so, they're so protective. And again, when you're up in the mountains and you're, you know, you're staring down an 800-pound grizzly bear that loves to eat people... You want something that's there to either protect, distract, or otherwise help you avoid a confrontation. And an Australian cattle dog, that, that's what 
where I live up here, people that are professional guides, whether it's, you know, pack trips or fishing trips or anybody that goes up into the mountains, they have Australian cattle dogs because they will kick the fuck out of a grizzly. And when I was up on this ride, you know, with my kids, because they were very young at the time, they were like eight or 10 years old. I'm thinking, you know what? Someday I'm going to have one of these dogs. They're so loyal. They're so smart. It's incredible how smart they are. And like I say, they're fearless. You know, big dogs like German Shepherds, Doberman Pitchers, all the dogs that people think is real protective dogs, and they are. There's no question about it. But those dogs wouldn't last five minutes up in the mountains. (laughs) They don't have the endurance, right? A cattle dog has the endurance. You could take a cattle dog out 15 or 20 miles up in the mountains, and it'll take out a grizzly all day long. Eric, if you'd like to pick up one of these dogs, please visit our, like, what the fuck? Are we selling blue healers? You've just sold me a dog. Dude, you asked me a question. I'm passionate about my dog. I, I you can, know that. I can you tell. asked me a question you knew I would get excited about. How could you How could <laughs> you be surprised? No, it just tickles me because you're like selling this dog. I'm like, damn, are we making a commission on these dogs? Like, I got to get no, in No, but here's the truth. I would discourage the average person <laughs> from getting one of these dogs. In fact, if you hear me talking about this dog and it sounds like a dog that you want, I'm going to tell you now, don't get it. Because because unless you have a significant amount of time to devote to these dogs, and I mean when I say devote, not only training, because they're really super smart, they're easy to train, but these dogs have so much energy. Like my dog, I have to get up and spend two hours every morning before the sun comes up. Well, not before it comes up, but as the sun comes up, I'm out taking my dog on a six mile hike every single day. Cause if I don't, she will like chew the shit out of my refrigerator. You have to work these dogs. They have so much energy. You have to work them. I have never loved you more than I love you right now. So, you know, that's so fun for me. Uh, Sean wants to know, do you wish social media would have been around during the Monday night wars? And would you have utilized it to tweak Vince? Second part of the question, would I ever use utilize it to tweak Vince? Of course. What the fuck does anybody think? Come on. Of course. We, we've been watching. We watched my stuff long enough to know the answer to that. Yes. Do I wish it would have been around? Of course I do. You know, you, keep in mind when, you know, 98 is when the internet first started really becoming a real thing. And Wait, wait, wait. You said you wish it would have existed? No, of course I wish it. It, it, it existed. Look, social media, especially if you look at it today, and I would like to think, you know, I would have been smart enough to figure this out. But if you look, here's an example. Becky Lynch. Seth Rollins is starting to do the same thing recently. They're really using social media as an extension of what we see on television as a way to keep their characters alive even after the air, after the show goes off the air. And I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by watching how people are starting to use social media. They're getting so much smarter and so much more consistent in a positive way with it. Whereas before it was like, oh, look what I had for breakfast. Oh, look at me and my dog. Oh, look at me and my wife or my girlfriend or my kids or whatever. It's all like, oh, hey, look at me. But now I'm starting, starting to really see people really effectively using social media as an extension of whatever we're seeing on television or an extension of their characters. And I would like to think that I would have been smart enough to see that opportunity. So in in that context, of course, I would have liked 
to have had that tool because it's just one more, you know, just one more, one more weapon, one more tool, you know, one more way of executing. One more way of getting in trouble. You know, if WCW, if the Monday night wars existed in the cell phone era, boy, people would have been drunk tweeting and taking pictures and flair would still be in jail. Like, I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's easy to overlook that aspect of where everybody's heads were at back in the late nineties. Clearly there would have been a learning curve. (laughs) It would have been horrifying. Carl wants to know if you didn't go into TV and wrestling, what do you think you would have done? Do you still think <laughs> the fuck are you laughing at brother? What's that question? That, I'm just going to stop there. If you didn't go into TV and wrestling, what do you think you would have done? Why is that so funny? I don't know. I might've become Senator state of Minnesota. Fuck off. I, 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 who knows what I would have done? I mean, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always been successful, you know, it's not that I've stayed successful throughout the entire part of my life. But if you look at, you know, my success failure factors and, you know, over the course of the last 40 years or so, maybe longer, 50 years, really, um, for the most part, I've always had a fair amount of success in whatever I did. So I'm not really sure what I would have been doing, but. I would have been great at it. I love your confidence. The answer is sales though, right? You would have, I mean, you, you had a, a gig and you know sales what, Conrad, here, here's, you know, I had this conversation with someone recently and I firmly believe this. And I know that you probably do too. So this is going to be a controversial thing for us to talk about, but I think whatever it is, you are successful at in life. It is rooted in your ability to sell. Yeah. Whether it's your passion, your art, your personality, your service, whatever it is you're representing, if you're passionate about it and you are inherently or, or by education or experience a good salesperson, you're going to be successful. And I think that's something that people don't pay enough attention to, you know, especially as time goes on. I don't want to get you know political at any expense. But there's so much emphasis put on, you know, where did you go to college? What's your degree in? You know, and, and, and to me, it's like, God, the question should be, what's your passion? You know, what makes you most excited? What gets you up every morning? Those are the things that I think define someone who is successful or unsuccessful. But regardless of all of that, if you don't have the ability to communicate it or sell it, you're not going to be successful. And I've, I've always been a good salesman. I ran away from home when I was four and a half years old. My parents told me this. I don't remember it. I decided I was going to run away from home and I went around my neighborhood and I collected pop bottle caps because where I lived, there was a lot of them laying around on the road. And I collected a big bag full of pop bottle caps and then I went door to door selling them at four or five years old. And my my idea was I'm going to sell all these pop bottle caps and I'm you know I'm going to get a bus ticket I'm going to go somewhere, you know that's been my nature and my instinct. But wait a minute, you were you were trying to catch a fucking bus at four? Yeah, I wanted to move. I I wanted to go do something. (laughs) I was running away from home. You were joining the New World Order at four. That's hilarious. I didn't even know where I was going to go. I didn't even know where to find the bus, but I knew I had to have money to do it. But picture this now. 
you're you know you're a blue collar person you know mom and dad kid two of your own you hear a knock on the door you go who the hell is that you open up the door and there's a four or five year old kid standing there with a paper bag full of pop out caps and saying I'll sell you two for a quarter well you know you're gonna get a quarter the kid's too cute how are you gonna say no to a five year old kid I came home with about six bucks which you know, in 1960, was a fair amount of money. So yeah, I've always been an entrepreneur, and 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 when I say entrepreneur, I real what I really mean is I've always been a salesman, and I would have been successful at whatever I decided I wanted to be passionate about. Robert wants to know. I'm interested in knowing your opinion on why WWE needs to be PG in order to make its stockholders happy. There are many programs on TV that show more adult material made by studios that are publicly traded. You want to tackle that one? Yeah, that's a really great question. That's almost a show in and of itself, really. That's a very, very weedy show. Our regular listeners know exactly what I mean. Here's what you have. Okay, first of all, let's 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 break it down. WWE is a publicly held company. Its success and or failure rests in many ways on its stock price. Its stock price is dependent upon the revenue it generates. The revenue it generates primarily comes from television, domestic television, international television. There are ancillary revenue streams that are built off of that pay-per-view. Really, in, 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 in all fairness, I think in WWE's case, the, you know, the WWE network is an extension now of what used to be the pay-per-view revenue stream. Almost one and the same. Merchandising, licensing, all of those revenue streams are really dependent upon the commercialization of the brand in the marketplace. The marketplace is driven by kids, teens, preteens, young adults, and and to a large degree women. In order to attract the advertisers that are attracted to those demographics, you have to create a program that is consistent with the advertiser's parameters. You can't have May West or May West, May Young giving birth to a hand. You can't have Steve Austin standing up on, you know, the ring post, you know, chugging a beer, flipping off the audience. Those things are inconsistent with mainstream advertisers that are trying to appeal to a teen and preteen audience. An advertiser has to answer for, when an advertiser, you know, uh, BBD now or Ogilvy Mather or, you know, pick one of the largest advertising agents that control 70 or 80% of the television advertising, you know, revenue that's distributed around the United States. Those advertisers have, they have to answer to their clients. So if I'm, for example, um, I'm going to just pick one out of thin air, Eminem Mars, and my target is teens and preteens, and the advertising agency that's in charge of placing that ad in the appropriate programming for me as a client opts to put that advertising in a program that would have been attitude era back in the late 90s where you've got Steve Austin and you've got Mabel Runner, not Mabel, I'm sorry, you've got... Uh, women running around with their breasts hanging out and flashing people and all the other crazy shit that made the attitude area so much fun for 
a certain demographic. If you're an advertiser that's looking for teens and preteens, you're kind of pissed off. You'll be hot at your agency. Your agency may lose that client as a result. And that could be millions and millions of dollars to the agency's bottom line. And it all trickles down to the content. So you've got WWE, which is a publicly held company, which is dependent a lot. I don't know what percentage. I'm not inside. I have no idea. I don't want to guess. don't want to pretend I know. But I would imagine a fair amount of WWE's revenue, which is tied to television licensing, is based on advertising. So if the WWE were to produce content that would appeal to 18 to 39-year-old males and go real edgy and, you know, like it was back in the mid to late 90s, they would lose a significant amount of advertising. Guess what happens to the, to the share price or the stock price at that point? Once you start losing advertising revenue, Wall Street gets real fucking crazy and they start bailing. You start losing sponsorships. You start losing associations with big brands because your content is too edgy. It's too adult. And your sponsors and your advertisers and other people that you're your partners are not interested in that demo. Your business goes down. So it's it's really not. I, I'm guessing. I, again, I want to make it really clear. I have. I don't talk to anybody. I don't even talk to Bruce Pritchard even though Bruce is now in WWE, we don't talk about WWE. We just don't. And it's out of respect. But... I, mean, I think that's uniform. Like, I don't either. Like, it, it, you know, if he offers something cool, but I'm never just, hey, how's everything going? Like, that's, that's weird. No, but I mean, I mean, the internal machinations and the strategies and all that goes into becoming a billion-dollar media property is very complex. And, you know, as fans, and I'm one of them, you know, I'm like you, you know, I'm, yeah, I've been in the business for a while and I think I know a little bit more about it than the average person walking up and down the street. But when I sit down on my couch and watch it at night, I'm looking for something that entertains me. Right. And oftentimes it's just a little sterile for me, but I also, because I know the business side of it, know that it has to be right. It just does. And, and it's frustrating. You know, it is what it is, but you know, it, it's look, it's not hard to go out there and produce some more mature content. It's not hard to go out there and gash yourself and bleed all over the place and have edgier shit and, you know, do things that are not PG. That's not hard to do. I did it. WWE did it. It's not hard to do. The hard part of doing it is getting advertisers to support it. That's where it gets really tricky. So, you and, you know, as much as I hated it, you know, and as much as it pains me to admit it to this day, you know, when Joe Yuva, who I've talked about and referenced and was, you know, discussed in Guy Evans' Nitro book, when Guy Evans, who was in charge of, of, of Turner's network ad sales, came to me in July of 1988, he was one of those 15 or 18 people in the meeting and said, no, 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 you've got to shift from that 18 to 39-year-old tone and you need to shift your tone to teens and preteens I just I threw up in my fucking mouth when he said it because I knew we would lose audience. But he also knew long term the only way to really survive from an advertising perspective and a television perspective was to go that route. And it's a real it's an inherent conflict with the nature 
of sports entertainment and or professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it. It's an inherent conflict between what the advertising community and television community will expect or accept and what you know will generate interest. And it's re- it's a really tough, it's a, it's a tightrope. And you really have to be careful how you try to traverse it. Here's a tightrope question for you. This is from Jeremy Porno. He wants to know who would win in a karate fight, you or Bruce Pritchard? It would last less than... 1,001, 1,002. Nope, it's over. I'd give it five seconds. And then it's and then Bruce is on the ground crying? Yeah, well, I don't know if he'd be crying, but he'd be sucking air. Oh, he'd be hollering. Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you? Yes. Everybody who's played football has had the wind knocked out of them. All right, so here's my thing. And, you know, Sonny Ono, if you ever have a private conversation with Sonny Ono and you ask him about my effectiveness as a martial artist, I was never flashy. I mean, I was physically capable of doing some flashy shit, but I never liked doing it because I liked having, I liked being on the ground. I didn't like jumping and spinning and kicking people in the head. I I could do it. Athletically, I was capable of it. I did it pretty well. But in a real situation, that shit don't fly. My thing, first of all, I'm, I'm naturally right-handed. I was born right-handed. I do my right hands almost in every way stronger than my left hand. Like, I can't write with my left hand. But if I hit you with my left hand, my left hand hits three or four times harder than my right hand, even though that my right arm's stronger and my right side's stronger. Now, there's a reason for that. Back when I was training really hard, I blew my knee. I tore my knee up really bad right out of the high school when I was doing some Greco-Roman wrestling. And I, I tore up some cartilage really bad in my right knee. Now, when you're right-handed and you're in martial arts, you fight with your left side forward. So you, you use your left leg like a jab. You use your right leg as your power leg. Like if you want to take somebody out, knock them down, whatever. The problem that I had as a natural right-hander with a bad wheel on my right leg is that when you pick up with your left leg to jab or to push people off with a side kick or to set up a punch or whatever, you have to pivot on that right leg. And my right knee was so bad, I couldn't do it. So I spent about four months, and I would literally go into the karate school every night for three or four hours after work, and I would tape with gaff tape, duct tape, I would tape my right hand to my hip and I would, I would fight with my right side forward because I could pivot on my left leg and I would use my left hand as my power hand. And I taught myself over three or four months to learn how to use my left hand. Cause I knew I couldn't, I couldn't fight with my right leg back any longer. I, I knew I couldn't pivot on it. I couldn't use it for support. I had to use my right leg as a jab and my left side is my power side. And when I adapted to that, and it took a while, it took a long time, it took, actually, really, it took about a year. But once I adapted to that, to this day, if I'm going to hit somebody, I'm not going to hit them with my right hand. I'm going to hit them with my left hand. But my right leg is so strong that my technique really is to fight with my right hand forward. I'll, I'll jab you with my right leg. I'll come across low with a 
my back leg, I'll sweep your legs out from underneath you, and I will stomp on your head or your body, depending on the situation. If I'm really pissed off, I'll, I'll kick you in the head. If I'm not, I'll stomp on you and, and take your ear. Okay, so you've got a whole strategy here. I, I, I got to know. When was the last time you kicked a motherfucker in the head? Um, About three years ago. Really? Yeah. Lori and I, <clears throat> this is a really funny story. I don't know if it's funny or not, but it's the last bar fight I got into. It was about three years ago. And Lori and I, we were living in Phoenix at the time. We said, let's go up to Prescott, Arizona. Jump on the Harley. It was a beautiful day. We'll go up to Prescott. They got an area up in Prescott called Whiskey Row. It's really cool. And, you know, Prescott, Arizona is like, you know, Wild Bill Hickok used to hang out there. You know, I mean, it's like all the really cool outlaws used to hang out there. And a lot of the bars are still there. Some of them burned down and been rebuilt. But it's it's a very cool old western town. So we jumped on the Harley. We drove up there. It was like, got there about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It was early. You know, and I thought, well, let's just go in before it gets busy. Because on the weekends in Prescott, it gets nuts. And I don't like being in busy bars when it gets late. So let's just go in and grab a beer. So Lori and I go into this bar. And we sit down. We're the only ones at the bar. There's nobody else there. And I was just going to have one or two beers. And by the way, I had a gun on me. I forgot that I had my gun on me. It was in my tucked away in the small of my back. And I actually forgot because I would never bring a gun into the bar. But I realized I had it on me once I got in there. So I figured, well, there's nobody else here. I'm going to have two beers and leave or three beers. No big deal. So I sit down at this bar. And Lori and I are in a conversation. <clears throat> this young kid comes in, <clears throat> probably 22, 25, sits down to my left. Kind of has his back turned to me, no big deal. Lori and I are talking. I've got a full beer sitting in front of me. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this kid reach over, grab my beer, take a big, long motherfucking pull off my beer, and set it down right in front of me. And I'm saying to myself, that's kind of an insult. Not sure I can tolerate it. So, I Lori... Lori kind of saw it, but it didn't register with her the same way it did with me. So I got up behind the kid in an amateur wrestling, it's called the chicken wing. I basically hooked him under his left arm, grabbed him by his chin in a chin drop. And he was about a buck 40 or buck 50. He wasn't a real big kid. I picked him up and threw him off of his stool up against the wall. And he hit the wall and he kind of slithered down. And he looked at me, he was kind of surprised. And I'm not sure he was completely coherent. Like, I think he just thought that beer might have been his. I think he might have been that fucked up. But I, you know, I didn't weigh that all out when I threw him off his stool. And he hit the wall, and I could see he was hot. And he started getting up. I said, if you get up, I'm going to knock you out. You should really stay right where you are until I sit down and finish drinking my beer. And then you can get up. And he stayed down. And he got up and he walked out. And he comes back, and this is the funny part. I mean, that's as physical as it got. I didn't kick him in the head. I didn't have to. He was scared enough, you know, whatever. So he leaves, and the bartender saw the whole thing. So I was good with the bartender. He didn't. He, he wasn't hot at me at all. And about 15 minutes later, the kid comes walking in with his uncle. Oh. His uncle's about 45, a pretty stout guy. And he comes walking in with his nephew, and he said, walks up, and we're still the only ones in the bar. And the bartender's back behind the bar. And he comes up to me and he goes, so, 
heard you beat up my nephew. I said, well, I didn't really beat him up. Just checked him. Didn't, didn't do any damage. We're all good. Because now at this point, I knew I had the gun on me, and I didn't want things to escalate. That was my door slamming in the wind. So the guy looked at me and goes, so what happened? I said, here's what happened. The bartender was nodding his head. And his uncle, the kid's uncle looks at me and goes, fuck, I'm so sorry. He looks at his nephew and goes, buy this gentleman a beer. Be glad you didn't get your brains kicked out. <laughs> that, that was it. That was the last fight I've been in. It ended really well. It wasn't really a fight. Well, you know what I was thinking, uh, I had the time to think while you were telling that story and, and I thought, man, does, you, had, you had the time to write a book while I was telling that story. Does Eric know that your teeth move when you get older? Did you know that? Because I didn't until very recently. And if you want to get your teeth fixed, but you don't want to get braces. And if you're like me and you think, well, that's the last thing I'm doing, then you need to hear about candid. It's the clear alternative to braces. And we are all in. Candid has an orthodontist who's licensed in your state, create a treatment plan custom for you, and even has a 3d preview of what the final results are going to look like. And that's what candid did for me. And w when we first heard about this, we thought, man, this sounds too good to be true. But Candid's legit. Is it not Eric? It is legit. And you know what? Um, now my wife and I, I, I haven't used the product. I'm not going to pretend I did <clears throat> when I haven't, but my wife, Lori, um, she needed she really needed braces, but she didn't want to go that route. And she found a product that basically allowed her to achieve the same results without having to get braces. And that was like five or six years ago. Candid has advanced so much further beyond that. It's a way that you can comfortably, aesthetically, because you're wearing these braces that no one can see. Right. I mean. Unless you open your mouth up for a dentist, no one's going to be able to see it. And to be able to straighten, because you, you know, as we get older, your head constantly grows. Your, your your muscles shift and change as you get older, and your your jaw is no different, and your teeth do move around, especially after you've had dental work and things like that. So th this is a great product, and it's easy to use. That's the thing, and it's you know non-obtrusive, so you're not walking around. You can actually get through a metal detector. Uh, and here's the cool thing too. Candid only uses experienced orthodontists. Other companies use dental professionals, whatever the hell that means. Uh, and now that we've approved our 3d preview, Candid can create custom clear aligners that will be sent directly to you. That means there's no hassle in having to go to an orthodontist office. Candid costs 65% less than bracelets. So you can say, which is a lot, which is a real lot. You're going to save thousands of dollars here, and you're going to have straighter, brighter teeth in an average of just six months. I'm super excited about this clear liner process from Candid, and you will be too. You're one step away from getting straighter, brighter teeth too. Use our dedicated link. Go to candidco.com. That's C-A-N-D-I-D-C-O.com slash 83 weeks. To learn more and you're going to get $75 off. That's right. Go to candidco.com slash 83 weeks. And you're going to get 75 bucks off. That's candidco.com slash 83 weeks. Especially if you have kids, you know what I mean? Because I mean, fortunately I didn't have that issue with my kids, but I have a lot of friends that do, and it's really, really expensive and no kid that's in grade school or junior high or 
especially high school, wants to be the metal mouth. That's no. what we used to call them. And this is a great, great opportunity. So you may not need it, but if you have kids that do, not only are you going to save a fortune, but you're probably going to help your kids avoid a whole lot of harassment and, and ridicule in school. So, Fun question here from Julian Cannon. What was the story behind the WCW snow brawl? I've only seen it once on MTV and for years, I kept trying to tell my high school and college friend that this event happened and they did not believe me. It's been years, but I finally found the footage and I'll tell you, I had no idea what this was either. So I had to throw up my Google machine. What do you remember about snow brawl? Fucking nothing. <laughs> I was afraid of that. 1999 is when it went down. It was pretty bizarre. Um, uh, hopefully I wasn't there. Well, throw what, you, what, what, what month in 1999? I'd have to look. I mean, it was, I, it was, I bet you, I bet you it was after September. For something called snow brawl? Yeah. Okay. Well, it wouldn't have snowed in, you know, April, May, June, July, August. Well, yeah. So it's January 23rd, 1999 in Big Bear, California. You're definitely there, but you've blocked it oh, out. Oh, shit. That's on me. I'm sorry. I don't remember. This makes me happy. Josh wants to know which theme song did Eric prefer? The NWO theme or I'm back? Actually, my favorite was White Train. That was the, the theme music that I used when I uh, faced Larry Zabisco in Washington, D.C. When was that, 97 or 98? I think 97. Th that was my favorite music, White Train. Uh, we licensed it for a period of months specifically for that pay-per-view. But other than White Train, and it was from a Quentin Tarantino movie. I know there was Desperado or something like that. That's where the, the song came from. But other than that... Um, the WWE music was great. Oh, it was tremendous. Uh, Tim wants to know what is the most important piece of advice you would give to AEW before their TNT debut? Fun question. Oh God. I hate, you know, I'm getting so many of these questions, which is why I didn't go to the AEW event. I told you that just cause I knew it just like people just jumped to so many conclusions. So, yeah, I mean, it's weird. You know, I hosted two of the rallies and then people think I work there. Where, where do these people come up with these ideas? Just because I'm holding an AW microphone and standing behind an AW podium doesn't mean I actually do anything for AW, you know? I'm calling bullshit on that, brother. <laughs> no, I, I love you to death and I'm calling bullshit on that. Nah, listen, everybody paying attention knows now that I was just a placeholder for uh, our boy JR. I mean, JR was under contract at the time, but why in the world would you call a Conrad to host a rally when you got a fucking JR? Come on. Anyway, continue. What I'm was just, your advice? I'm just going to let that one sit for a minute, but thank you. Um, you know, I here. This is so hard. This is why I avoided any association at all because I knew I'd get these types of questions, and I, I hate them. I don't hate the questions; they're good questions, but they're so hard to answer. Here's here's the truth. This is not me trying to cover my own ass or pander to anybody else. But I don't know what their goals are. Right. I have no idea. I have no idea what the AEW strategy is. I have no idea what the AEW business plan is. I have no idea what the risk tolerance is. I have no idea what their plan B is. I have no idea of anything. I'm just like everybody else who's watching it, seeing it, reading about it, hearing about it. And I, it, I refuse to 
try to sound like I'm smart enough to give advice to an organization that I know nothing about. Right. <laughs> I just don't. You know, in a in a you know in a macro kind of way, be as different as you could possibly be from the competition. It worked for me. That was my kind of self mandate when I launched Nitro: is don't try to be better than the competition. Be different than the competition, and hope hopefully being different is enough to make people want to check you out. And I would stick with that. Now, different in which way? That you know that requires a lot more thought and kind of a granular approach and you need to know, you know, what's your strategy? You know, we talked about ad sales just a few minutes ago. Here's, you know, I only know what I read and I don't know if what I read is even true or accurate. But for example, if what I read is true and the AEW TNT deal is TNT is going to cover cost of production, which to me says that TNT is going to actually produce it with their equipment, their crews, their people, because that would make sense. Um, and it would also minimize the expense compared to a third-party production company. So I'm assuming TNT is going to actually provide the physical production of the show. And they're going to split on, on some basis, some percentage basis. Let's just say it's 50-50. They're going to split the advertising revenue. Here's what I do know. This is This is not something I feel slightly intimidated about saying selling advertising and wrestling is extraordinarily difficult because wrestling is not a drama, but it is. It's not a sitcom, but it is. It's not a sport, but it is. It's its own weird kind of fucking duck, right? And it's really hard to get mainstream, big advertisers, mainstream advertisers, the ones that spend 80% of the revenue in the ad market, it's really hard to get them comfortable with professional wrestling simply because they can't define it. And it makes it hard. And this is, you know, this is the process, okay? Get out your weed eaters because we're going to get into the fucking weeds. The way advertising is sold is you have your clients, your Mars, your General Mills, your Coors Beer, your General Motors, whatever it is, your big advertisers. They hire agencies, and they depend on those agencies to spend the client's money in the most efficient, effective manner possible to get the biggest ROI they can on those advertising dollars. And the advertising agency takes a percentage of those dollars that are spent. That's how they make their money. So if an advertising agency says, hey, General Motors, we're going to spend $4 million over here in this new thing called AEW Wrestling on TNT. They've never had wrestling before, not in 25 years. But this new company's come along. They haven't really done television before, but they've had some really good pay-per-views. They've got a big buzz, blah, 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 blah. That's a hard sell. There's not many advertising agents or executives that want to go to the client and justify that decision because they, they have to. They don't just they don't just get a bucket of money and the, and the client says go spend it however you think is best. They have to justify those expenditures. They, in many cases, they have to approve them with the client. So, and because of you know the fact that wrestling is so unique, it's a very difficult sell. So here's what happens, and Conrad, you know this. Your salesman is much more than I am. What do salesmen normally reach into their bucket of tricks to sell? The hardest thing there is to sell, 
or the easiest thing there is. Of course, the easiest. The hardest thing to sell is professional wrestling, especially a startup, right? Now, if an advertising, if, if a client is inclined to spend their money in advertising in wrestling, where do you think they're going to be prone to spend it? In a startup on TNT? Or over here in AED, or excuse me, in WWE, where they've already got a lot of major clients. Somebody else has already crossed that bridge. Somebody else has already proven that it works. Now, if you're a salesman and if you're an advertising executive, who are you going to try to sell? And that's what's going to make it hard for AEW. It's not going to be easy for them to generate money, revenue, in the advertising marketplace. And then when they do, they have to split it. So I think that's going to be a tough sell. And if and this is where it's so fascinating and tricky. And this is why I said earlier on, strategy is everything. Long-term planning is everything. You know, you have to recognize that you're you're swimming upstream if you think you're a new wrestling organ. I don't care if it's AEW. I don't care if they got a billion fucking dollars they're going to throw at it. It doesn't matter. The advertising community isn't going to latch on like wrestling fans do. The advertising community will latch on five or six or ten years later once it's proven and it's a phenomenon, it's a part of pop culture, then they'll jump on it. But first two, three, four, five years, it's you're swimming uphill. So I'm not really sure how they plan to manage that part of it. And that's the part that, you know, fascinates me. And, and you know, in my creative mind, I know they're going to have to be different than. If they try to be better than, if they try to replicate WWE only and try to find a way to do it better, eh... I give them two years tops, but uh, and, and, and they've already proven it. They're, they're already on this track. They're going to provide something that it's a legitimate alternative. I know that's what they're thinking based on what we've seen. The question is, how is the advertising, the television community going to adapt to that? I think that's going to be a real uphill battle. Well, it's not an uphill battle to go to sleep anymore. Thanks to our friends over at calming comfort weighted blanket. You know, you've heard us talk about this for a while and Eric, you've admitted that you were a bit of a skeptic and when you finally tried this thing out, you got it. No more sleepless nights because you've tried calming comfort by sharper image. This way. Can I jump in here? Can I jump in? Yep. Just last night. And I'm, this is no bullshit. I love this product. I love this product. So it's it, finally summer has arrived in Wyoming. And it gets up in the 70s and the 80s during the day. But at night, it goes down to like 40. And there's no humidity. It's wonderful. Last night, because I have windows on three sides of our bedroom, I opened up the windows wide open. Wide open. And it got down to about 40 degrees in my room. But I was under my calming comfort blanket. I think it weighs 25 pounds. And it kept me toasty warm. I almost felt like I was sleeping outside. I felt so good and it was so comfortable. I didn't wake up. I went to bed last night about quarter to 10. I didn't wake up till seven o'clock this morning, which for me, normally I'm up at five for me to sleep in till seven o'clock was amazing. And I, it was such a great night's sleep. I'm telling you, this thing is legit. We've talked about it for a while now. If you're still, you know, uh, I don't know on the fence about it, get over it. Uh, we can't recommend this enough. It is the number one thing that everybody in my house wrestles for. Just like 
at Eric's house. You're going to sleep like a baby. You won't believe the difference. You're going to fall asleep faster. You're going to stay asleep longer. You know, it's just going to help calm you down. You're going to feel more secure, more settled. You will fall asleep easier. And this calming comfort weighted blanket, man, they take it seriously. They even give you a 90 day anxiety, free, stress-free best night's sleep of your life guarantee from sharper image. And right now our listeners can go to calmingcomfortblanket.com and use our promo code 83 weeks and a checkout. You're going to see $15 off the displayed price. One more time. That's calmingcomfortblanket.com and the promo code is 83 weeks. And because you can't put a price on a great night's sleep, go online now. Calmingcomfortblanket.com and the promo code is 83 weeks. And you're going to get a great deal when you use that code. Uh, this is fun, man. I'm having fun asking these questions. Although I do disagree about your AEW assessment. I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be bonanzas. John wants to know, did WWE? No, whoa, 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 wait, let me follow up on that. I'm not saying they're not going to be successful. The question that was posed to me is what advice do you have? My response was I can't give anybody advice if I don't know so many, you know, if I don't know the strategy, if I don't know the threshold for pain, if I don't know their timeline you know how long are they going to i mean there's so many things i don't know that giving giving advice is silly but my observation is where their challenges are going to be and i'm not saying they won't i think they're going to be very successful i'm absolutely sure they're going to be successful but i don't know how to give them any advice john wants to know did wwe ever ask you to be a part of creative no no you know what what's really interesting about that and i I reflect back on that a little bit. I'm pretty certain knowing the personalities of the people involved, mainly Vince and, and others, that if I would have stepped up and said, Hey, I'd like to kind of jump in on this. I'm sure I would have been given that opportunity, but I never offered and They never asked. I don't know why, but that's interesting to me. Uh, let's keep it moving here. We got this question a lot. Um, well, let me, let me pivot to another one first. Juan wants to know, was the aces and eights storyline of TNA partly your creation? And if so, did you make a concerted effort to have a definite blow off to the storyline? Since that was something the original NWO angle never had. That was, you know, and I hate to say things like this, cause it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but that idea was all mine. Um, there was very little. Now, you know, everybody contributed. The talent contributed. You know, once you launch something like that, you start laying scenes out and talking about dialogue and things like that. Everybody's got an opinion. Bully certainly did. Uh, Ken Anderson did quite a bit. Um, a lot of people did. But, yeah, that, you know, and it's really interesting. People, you know, unfortunately, you know, TNA was semi-dysfunctional at that point. But if you go back and break that storyline down and follow the arc of that storyline and what we did do to pay it off, that's a pretty good storyline. I think if you talk to Bully at any point and ask him how he felt about that storyline, given all the things that he's been through, either at ECW or WWE, I think he puts that Aces and Eight storyline right up at the top of the list in terms of the quality of the story in the way it was executed. I'm, I'm very proud of it, but yeah, it, it definitely wanted to have a bigger blow off. Definitely had an end to it. It wasn't designed to, you know, last forever or be a catapult or a catalyst for a brand split or anything like that. It was a, it was a, you know, a, a, 
a freestanding storyline, if you will. We got lots of questions about aces and eights, but, uh, I think you pretty much summed up the majority of them there. Uh, horror movie barbecue wants to know, are there any mementos or souvenirs that Eric kept from his WCW office in Atlanta? None. It is interesting that none. I only, I only have one piece of memorabilia throughout my entire 32 or 33, whatever it is, years, 34 years in the business. And that's the original AWA blazer that I wore when I was hosting ESPN. I still have that, but I don't have anything else. I think I may have a picture or two. I don't even know where they are. I'd have to really turn my house inside out to find it, but no, I don't, I don't have any memorabilia. Uh, Gary wants to know what, WCW show are you most proud of? Is there one show you look back at, whether it was a nitro in particular or a certain thunder, <laughs> uh, maybe a pay-per-view that you look back and say, Oh man, if you had to just judge me based on one show, make it that one. There probably is. I don't know it off the top of my head. It's, you know, the, the obvious answers would, you know, I could pick bash at the beach 96 or, you know, there's some, <clears throat> big moments, 10 pole events that we could go back and look at. But I'm pretty sure some of the highest quality shows that I did from my perspective, at least today, probably don't stand out in the, in the minds of most wrestling fans because I, I judge quality now by continuity, by, by detail of storyline, by the emotion, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, action, you know, the, the, the Sarsa kind of filter that, that I tried as best I could to, to use as a filter. And I'm sure there are a lot of shows that we did that, you know, people may not even remember, but from a television point of view, we're, we're great television. I, I just, you know, I'd have to really go back and watch a lot of shit because we produced a fair amount of it. <laughs> Uh, Alice, why, is that, why is that funny? Come I don't on, know. Just me. we've produced a, you know, I'd have to watch some of that shit. We produced a fair amount of it. The, the, the phrasing tickled me. Sorry. Well, I'm just being honest. Yeah. Uh, Alice just talk, I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking to you and our listeners the way I would just imagine we're all sitting around a table, having a beer and a, and a hot dog and talking about wrestling. That's what this podcast is. I'm just not trying to sound pretentious or too smart or just answering the question the best I can. Allison Faye wants to know whose career do you think would benefit the most from making the transition from wrestler to manager slash ballet? Hmm. What was that one again? Give me that one again. Whose career do you think would benefit the most from making the transition from wrestler to manager slash ballet? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing she means like currently. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go to another question if you need to. Yeah, that, that question doesn't make a lot. I mean, I think I understand it, but I don't know how to answer it without the right context. I don't know if she means back in the day or currently. So well, let's say for another show. Give me a back in the day. Back in the day to transition from wrestler to manager to valet. No, not, 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 not to valet, just... You know, well, someone trying to be a wrestler who needed to be on the outside of the fucking ring. I, I feel like I'm talking to myself here, but like Sp Spud is a great example of somebody who went in to be a wrestler 
and then became a wrestling, more of a wrestling personality. And it's been a home run. And there's some other guys in NXT who were perhaps independent wrestlers, but maybe they have sites set for them to be something different on the main roster. Leo rush comes to mind. Is there anyone in particular back in the day who was just dead set on, I want to be a wrestler, but really their highest and best use was probably somewhere else. I think Disco Inferno would have been a fantastic manager. Excellent. A fantastic manager because you wanted to kick the shit out of him. You just did. And he was a great talker and he understood the psychology. He understood the psychology of a good heel character and a babyface character. He was willing to be the foil. He could bump like a million bucks. I think Disco Inferno could have probably had a much better career as a manager than he did as a wrestler. No argument based, from me there. That's based, a great answer. Based on those parameters. Joel wants to know, what do you think of NXT version of war games? I don't know if you saw this, but they pulled the top off and they put platforms in the corners. Still calling it war games, but it doesn't really look like war games. What say you? I, I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And I don't want to second guess anything. Maybe it's doing tremendously well. And just like giving advice to AEW, giving advice to WWE is probably a silly thing to try to do at this point because I'm not there. But I, I, I just don't like referring back to certain things. You know what I mean? Like referring back to war games. Eh, unless you're going to follow that format and really make it important and stick to it and build upon it every year, just come up with something fresh. All right. Be different. Don't, don't try to reach back into your wrestling bag of tricks and pull out something that people kind of remember and modify it. Just start off with something new. Josh wants to know for the short time sting turned heel in 99, how did he feel about it? And why was that not made into an even bigger angle? Yikes. What part of 99 was that? You know, <laughs> I love that's your go-to. Wasn't me. Oh, it was January. Oh, fuck. No, I me. didn't say it wasn't me. I just don't remember exactly when it was for fuck's sake. I'm not trying to palm it off on somebody else, but I'm trying to remember. I, you know, I, I'd have to go back and look at it and, and it jog was, my memory. I think it was September. September of 99? Yeah. I'm out. See, that's what I, I knew you were going to say. But that might be, If it was after September 10th, 1999, I got nothing to fucking do with it. Justin has a question that we get a variation of every time we do something like these. If you had your own company, would you hire Conrad Thompson? And if so, what would he do? I'd make him CEO. I'd work, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd work for that bitch. <laughs> oh my God. I'd, I'd make him tell me what to do every day. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't yell that way. Right. Uh, Hey, Graham wants to know, was there a moment when you realized, holy smokes, I've made it. Uh, this is turning around after you became the executive producer. And if so, what was that moment? Can I guess? Go ahead and guess. My guess is. Bash at the Beach 94 when Hogan Flair happened. No, it was after that. It was it was probably a couple months after Nitro debuted. Because we were still treading water. I mean, we were doing better. We were, you know, 94 to your point. Um, your example. Oh, I got it. So here here it is then. When you turn that dollar profit for WCW. Yes. yes. That was all that mattered to me, honestly. That was my my focus was so I was so linearly focused on that 
first dollar. That's all I cared about. It's all I cared about. If we would have been within $10,000 of making that first dollar profit, I would have spent $10,000 of my own money to get us over the finish line. It's all I cared about. Because I really believe, well, it's not that I believed it, I knew it, that if WCW would get to the point where it wouldn't be in red, it would have lasted forever. In my mind at that time, with, with you know, under Ted Turner. And I would, I would have been right about that. Because Ted was fine with it losing money. Ted was. The rest of the company wasn't. But Ted was fine with it. And I just knew if I could turn that first dollar profit, the rest of the company would have to shut the fuck up and I would have made Ted happy and we'd have been gold. So yeah, turning that first dollar profit was a big damn deal. But you know, here's what's funny, Conrad. I never, I never at any point felt like I made it. Like, like the pressure was off. Like even after the first dollar profit, when Harry Anderson got down on one knee at, at a local pizza place in downtown Atlanta in front of all of our employees at a Christmas party and handed me the first dollar profit, literally, that WCW ever made as a part of Turner, Turner Broadcasting. I, you, know, you would think I would have felt like, oh, I finally made it. But that was just, that was fun. That was just a way to motivate people, and it was a way to have some fun with Harry Anderson and kind of bridge the distance between WCW as the redheaded stepchild and the corporate part of Turner Broadcasting, which was a big part of my goal at that time. That was really just fun, but there was never a time, I can honestly say this, where I felt like I made it. The only thing I ever felt was more pressure to jump higher or to make more money or to be more successful or to get a higher rating. I never felt like I made it. Well, that's not depressing at all. Anthony wants to know. Eric- no, it's not depressing. Bro, that's not depressing. You are the same way. You are exactly like me in that respect. You did the first StarCast. Did you feel like you made it? Nope. Did you feel like you made it on the second one? Absolutely not. Fuck not. You were already planning on the third one before you left the second one. You're just like me. You're an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurs never feel like they've made it. I don't think. I, I think if the minute you feel like you've made it, you stop thinking, you stop imagining, you stop using your imagination, you start working, you stop working as hard. I, I never want to feel like I've made it. I've made it and unmade it and made it and unmade it probably 20 times throughout my adult life, and I'm cool with that. The minute I feel like I've made it, eh. That's like, it's like being dead. Dustin has a great question. The type that I like Eric, when you were selling AWA to syndication, what did those deals look like economically? They were a barter. It was strictly a barter. You put the show on the air. Um, we'll split our advertising. When we come to your market, we'll buy advertising on your local station. That was it. There was nothing more complicated than that. So the idea, the idea is you would go in and you would convince, you know, a, a program director or a general manager, depending on who you're pitching, you'd convince them that, you know, wrestling still draws an audience. And you could, you know, for me in AWA, I could point to our ratings in Minneapolis or Milwaukee or even Chicago at the time or in smaller markets like Madison, Wisconsin, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I could point to success. I could say, look, this is what we're doing on Sunday mornings between 10 and noon. Here's the kind of ratings we're getting. So it was, you know, it was, it wasn't a tough sell. 
And at that time of day, advertising again, because it's television, advertising is a little tough in those day parts. So if you go in and say, look, we'll split, we're not going to charge you for the programming because most networks have to pay for content. We're not going to charge you for it, but we'll split the advertising revenue and we'll come here once a month. And when we do, we'll spend five or 10 grand, you know, on that week advertising our event. Most markets felt like that was a pretty good deal compared to a local fishing show or, you know, religious programming or whatever is usually in that kind of weekend day part. I prefer the air asks favorite person to travel with. Didn't have any, you know, I only, the only person I really traveled with was DDP and I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I would have much preferred to be, I I like being alone. No shit. You do. I, I think that's sort of underrated. And I think people misread you as a result. Like what type of social time you were in Vegas for multiple days. What type of social time did you and I have together? Zero. Yeah. That's, and that's not unique. Like when we do shows on the road, it's like, you know, you could do your thing and I go do mine. And then we get together. You just, and I think some people read that is Eric is arrogant. Eric is an asshole. Eric is standoffish. Eric is whatever, but that's just your personality. You probably hear I that t- all the time. I, I, I like being alone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I preferred, you know, cause a lot of times, you know, when I was in Vegas, I was thinking a lot. I was, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm always looking around me and looking at opportunities or trying to see if there's opportunities that maybe not, are, are not quite as obvious to me, you know, when I'm not in a big environment, but I, I don't chat much, you know, I mean, I hung out with Sonny and Ernest and Scott Norton and, you know, a couple other people, but even that was brief, you know, out of the entire four days, I may have spent three hours total having dinner and going out to eat and things like that. The rest of the time I was by myself walking around, checking things out. The classic wrestling question comes to us from Mike. Who was on Eric's Mount Rushmore of wrestling? Oh, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Vince McMahon. One more. Uh, the fourth one's tough because there's so many. I mean, it would, you know, easily Andre the Giant could be an easy answer, but so could. You know, so could Luthes, so could any number of other people. But, you know, when I when I think about that, because I get asked that question often, you know, you, I have to think about it for me personally. Not who is necessarily the most important in terms of you know the best wrestler or whatever, but who actually moved the needle the most? Who moved, who built the business the most? And that's where the Hogan's, the Flair, the Steve Austin's, the Vince McMahon's. That's probably what I would go with, by the way. Those would be my four. Um, because they move the needle the most. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Fun question here from Dan. Can you talk about your involvement in the WCW home video distribution? I was a tape collector and noticed several pay-per-views in that era were not released on home video, not in the U.S., but in the U.K., also, what are your memories of the Boston Brawl internet only paper listen? Uh, we'll do the last question first. Who first pitched paper listen and, and why were you sold on it? I wasn't necessarily sold on it. It was an experiment. And again, that was the beginning of the, you know, well, I don't say the beginning, but it was the early phases of the internet where it was kind of the wild, wild west. And we were all trying to figure out how best to monetize it. 
So that's all that was. No more, no less. The first question, I actually had nothing to do with home video. I mean, that was Sharon Sevilla, primarily. And she was a VP, so she had the authority to enter into deals um, for the most part on her own, um, as long as she didn't go outside of certain protocols and all that. But, um, yeah, I didn't have anything to do with that. We do get lots of questions about that. Lots of old tape collectors. Uh, Frank Johnston wants to know when you go to the WWE, what surprised you the most about Vince McMahon? Wow. This will sound like I'm pandering or kissing ass and I don't want it to be. I bet I can guess what is the way he was with his kids. No, because that wasn't apparent to me. You know, I didn't see, I, I did see some of that interaction but very little of it. I actually saw it the first night that I came in, you know, after I came out and made my big reveal and all of that. Um, backstage, you know, Shane was there, Linda was there, Stephanie was there. And after the show, everybody kind of got together because I, you know, I think everybody recognized it was kind of a unique moment to have me there in that role. And, and I read people pretty quickly. I'm not saying accurately. Sometimes I misread people, in fact, frequently. But I like to believe I'm a pretty good read. And when I saw Vince with his family, I went, okay, that's a different cat than I thought. But you only get a glimpse of that. You only see a little bit of that. Not a lot of it. I think what I saw that surprised, first of all, here's the first, there was a couple things. One is the absolute loyalty of the people backstage now, and I'm sure in the office, it's much the same way. I just, I was never in the office. So I don't know. But when I saw it's a difference between hiring a bunch of subcontractors to come and work on your house and hiring family members to come and work on your house. You know, the people that were backstage that I experienced, you know, Bruce, obviously being one of the first, but everybody else just, there was, there was a loyalty to the brand and to the company that was way different than what I was used to. You know, WCW, I, mean, I want to make really clear. We had, you know, Craig Leathers, you know, Annette Yothers, Tony Schiavone, you know, Neil Pruitt, David Crockett, you know, there were a bunch of people, and many more than I've named just now, that were really, really loyal. You know, David Crockett, I think, being one of the most. But they represented a very small part of the pool of people that it took to get that show up on the air. The rest of them were freelancers and they were good and they were professional. I'm not, not busting their balls, but there's a big difference between people who, you know, are longtime employees of the company who believe in it, who've stuck with it. They fought through, you know, the shit that I put them through. They almost went out of business. They came out on top. There's a loyalty there in an intensity of that loyalty that you can't really quantify that easily. It's, but it's there, and that was that was something that that I noticed right away. You know, just just the loyalty, the intensity of that loyalty to the company and to the people that they work for. We got lots of questions about Goldberg here, but this one stuck out to me. Kevin wants to know how come Goldberg and Macho Man never had a match in WCW? Was there a reason they never got together? 
there wasn't a reason. I, I, I just think, you know, given all the storylines and all the things that we're doing, doing during the time that we were doing it, it just, I don't want to say it wasn't necessary, but it just wasn't top of mind. You know, I mean, Goldberg had some pretty good story. There wasn't anybody that Bill had a storyline with. It wasn't a pretty good storyline, at least that I can recall. Uh, Randy had his own great storylines that he was involved with. So it just really wasn't necessary. Before Goldberg was the uh, the monster of WCW, Vader was. But, of course, as a bad guy. Brim wants to know, would Eric have booked Goldberg versus Vader? And if yes, what type of finish would he have liked? Uh, I'm stuttering trying to answer that question. No, I would have never put them together. Bill, you know, Bill, especially 98, 99, whenever he debuted, late 97, whenever it was, his repertoire just, you had to be really careful who you booked him with. And the style of match was really challenging. You know, Bill couldn't go out there and work, you know, a 20 or 30 minute match with half a dozen false finishes and, and all of that crazy shit. He, he, his, his skill sets were really, really limited. His character was very, very well defined. His character didn't allow for him to engage in a lot of different types of psychology and storytelling. His character was very limited. It was very well defined. It was very effective. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking it. It was huge. But it, he, he wasn't a versatile player. And Vader, you know, at his peak, wasn't necessarily the easiest guy for a lot of people to work with. So putting those two dynamics together and hoping to get something great out of it wouldn't have occurred to me. Alan Myers wants to know how difficult was it to keep Roddy Piper signing and him showing up at Halloween Havoc 96, a secret? Not at all. Not at all. Roddy was a, you know, traditional, you know, trustworthy. I mean, Roddy was something once we made up our mind, cause Roddy knew here's the thing. I, you know, I can put Roddy over and I will, because he was an honest person. He was somebody. If I said, Roddy, I want to keep this between you and I, I didn't have to think about it. I didn't lay in bed at night wondering if he was going to spill the beans to Dave Meltzer, you know, Wade Keller, whoever else. You know, I didn't worry about him, you know, walking into a room full of wrestling fans and talking about something openly. It wasn't, that was not even, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind to think about that. Roddy was one of those people, when you looked him in the eye and you shook hands with him, you knew that what he said was true and, and he'd live up to it. So that part was easy. And this was before social media and everything else. So it, it really wasn't that difficult. You know, you had to go through, you know, I had to do things a little differently, you know. Had to make sure, you know, when Nick Lambros, who was my legal guy, um, did the contract that, you know, he, he had to know that, that this one had to be discreet. Uh, when we booked travel, had to do that differently because if it would have gone through the Turner Broadcasting, you know, travel department, then, you know, three dozen people would have known and they wouldn't have known to keep it quiet. They would have started talking about it in the office. And before you knew it, you know, inadvertently, not intentionally, but inadvertently, that kind of shit gets out. So, you know, you have to make certain arrangements. Same way I did when I came into WWE. When I came into WWE, they wanted to fly me in. I said, whoa, whoa, no, don't fly me in. I'll fly myself in. You can reimburse me after the fact. 
because the minute my name shows up on some kind of travel document inside the travel department of WWE, and I'm not knocking them, you know, because I certainly wasn't inside, but I made it clear that I thought it was a mistake for them to do it that way. And I offered to book myself and they could reimburse me later because so often the things that leak out aren't intentional. People, you know, aren't just spilling the beans because they want to. It's sometimes it just happens by accident. So you've got to kind of anticipate those things and, and make sure they don't happen. And that was the case with Roddy. But, you know, as far as dealing with Roddy, that was easy. Cody had a fun question. What was the most stressful episode of Nitro? Oh, fuck. Huh. Oh, God, I couldn't begin. They were all pretty stressful. Hard to pick one. Honestly, I mean, here's here's one you can pick then. Chris Herman wants to know, was there any talent from WWF or ECW that called and wanted to jump to WCW that Bischoff had absolutely no interest in signing? I'm sure there were several, but pin down one for us. Not really. Not really. And that's not to say that, you know, I hired everybody that reached out to me, but again, this is going to sound a little arrogant, but think back. 95, 96, 97, until Thunder came along and we knew we needed more talent, which is why Bret Hart came on board. We didn't really need anybody. It wasn't like, oh my God, I got to get this guy in order to achieve this. We were already achieving this without having to hire a lot of people. So there was nobody really that, um, I mean, people would put the, you know, and that's the other thing. It's not like people would pick up the phone, you know, ask for Eric Bischoff and, offer to come in you know a lot of times the the conversations take place very subtly privately between friends somebody that knows somebody that knows cherry taylor you know whoever kevin sullivan name your you know booking committee member um and they put the word out and and then terry or kevin or somebody would come to me and say hey what do you think about this guy but again 96 97 98 we didn't need a lot of people no arguing that from me. One of the questions uh, that we got was about somebody jumping. This comes from D Brooks. He wants to know the narrative via 83 weeks so far is that Randy Savage signing was a direct correlation to Hogan already being on board. My question is if no Hogan, do you think you would still have a shot to land Randy? Is WCW even on his radar without Hulk's assurances? That is the best question I think I have ever been asked either on social media or certainly on this podcast. What a great question. Who, who sent that question in? Derek Brooks. Derek Brooks. You're my hero. I love good questions. I think the honest answer to that is no. I don't think if Hogan, if Hogan hadn't come on board, let's just speculate, you know, it's hypothetical. If Hogan would have said, screw it, I'm done with wrestling. I'm going to go make movies and thunder in paradise. I never want to wrestle again. I don't think I could have gotten Randy over. I don't think I could have. Randy, Randy was a guy that needed as strong as Randy was as a character and as confident as he was, he knew he had, he was smart. He knew he had to be around other equally high profile talent in order to survive long-term. Randy probably, and I'm guessing now, obviously, but knowing Randy as well as I did, and I think I knew him pretty well, business-wise, Randy would have known that he could have come over 
without Hogan, sans Hogan, he could have come over on his own. He would have, could have made a big splash for a short period of time. But without the right cast of characters around him, he would have been smart enough to realize it would have been short-term, and he would have opted for a longer-term play because he was that smart. You know, I, I know you, uh, we think you're smart. We, the listeners, think that Eric Bischoff is smart. But I saw you tweet something, I don't know, like a month ago. And he said the most frustrating part of being a high tech redneck, too many effing remotes. When you want it live on TV, you want it now. Damn it. Dude, this is like, honestly, this is a huge pet peeve of mine. I mean, I'm angry at myself. Do you know that about four, five years ago, I broke my baby fucking toe trying to rush for a remote and it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. I literally got up off my bed to run across the bedroom to change a channel because it was something that I wanted to see or an update I wanted to get. And as I'm run, I jump out of bed, Lori and I are in bed eating ice cream on a Sunday morning. I jump. Is that sick? That's decadent right there. I jump out of bed. I go to run across the living or the, the bedroom for the remote. I hook my right baby toe on the edge of a bed frame. It's at a 90 degree angle. I'm screaming like a fucking banshee in pain. I look down and my toe is at a 90 degree angle to my foot. Why? Because I left the freaking remote halfway across the room. And since that time, it's been nothing but worse. Now, I haven't broken any bones since then, but you don't know how many times I've screwed up my own television by grabbing the wrong remote, pressing the wrong button, and have to reset the whole thing. It's really a huge pet peeve. Eric, have I got great news for you. Cavo is the new universal TV remote that makes everything you have connected to the TV easy for the whole family to use. You can connect up to four home theater devices plus a sound system and Cavo controls them all. It even has voice control. And how about this for the perfect Father's Day gift? How many remotes do you have? Do you have to flip through HDMI ports just to watch a movie? Do you find yourself playing IT guy every time somebody just wants to watch TV? God, I hate that. I hate that. Go ahead. Give dad the one remote. The gift of one remote. One remote. So everyone in the family can... Watch TV without your help, and you can sit back and relax. No more multiple TV remotes. Once you connect the control center, you can use the all-in-one voice-activated TV remote to control everything that's connected to your TV. Just ask, relax, and enjoy. And you can save $10 off control center starter pack bundles that include a one-year service plan for just 79 bucks when you use the code 83weeks. Now, the more devices you have, the more it delivers. You can connect up to four devices plus a sound system. So like your cable or satellite and DVR, there's one. Your streaming media players like Apple TV or Amazon Fire or Roku. Your sound bar, your game consoles, your DVD Blu-ray players, whatever. This is simple to set up. It's family friendly. It's a true universal search across all your content. And it works with both Google Voice and Amazon Alexa. So do it now. Check it out. 
Cavo. No, 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 Conrad. I, they, I actually have one. It was shipped to me. I'm setting it up tonight. Let me ask you, how many remotes do you have in your house? Because you're like a freaky, you know, you watch a lot of TV, you're into sports. I don't know if you gamble or not, but you got a lot of TVs, right? Uh, yeah, I do. How many remotes do you have? One. One. Mm-hmm. Which one is it? Cavo. Okay. Before you got Cavo, how many remotes did you have? One. I knew I had a problem for this a long time ago and I licked it and I used control four. But for the last 10 years of my life, maybe more, I've used one remote. I've had, I, I have one, two, three, four, five televisions in my house. Each one of them has two remotes. That's 10. 10. 10 remotes. And here's the shitty thing about my remotes because all, you know, all my boxes, everything's the same. My, my remotes all look the same, but guess what? If I pick up a remote in my bedroom and take it downstairs, carrying it with me, and I set it down in the living room, if I'm talking on the phone and I'm not paying attention, that remote doesn't sync up to the TV that's downstairs. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all synced up. It's a pain in the ass, and I can't be the only one out there. I invite our listeners right now. This is no shit. I'm really curious. I would love our listeners if you've got a story, I broke my toe. That's my story. You've got a story, write in and tell us. And Conrad and I are going to work out a way for you to get a free starter kit. So we want to encourage you to go check this out. It sounds too good to be true, but Cavo is C-A-A-V-O dot com. That's C-A-A-V-O dot com. They've got a free 30-day return policy, but you're not going to need that. This thing is awesome. And you get a special deal when you use our code. So what are you waiting for? Go make it happen right now. C-A-A-V-O.com. That's Cavo. And you want to use that promo code 83 weeks and you'll get $10 off your control center starter pack. Eric's a believer and you will be too. Uh, hey, let's no, do- and, and I'm going to take it a step further. If you send a picture, if you stack up all your remotes, I don't care if you spell YMCA or make a little TP out of your remotes. Show me, show me how many remotes you have in your house. Send me a picture at eBischoff on Twitter. If we pick it, Conrad and I pick it as the best picture of the week. We're going to work together and get you a free combo remote. And please don't do anything salacious with these remotes. We're trying to pick a wholesome winner. Uh, <laughs> Nathan wants to know, and this is a fun question. Since Hulkamania ended the next time Hogan showed up on a pay-per-view after uncensored 96, do you think Kevin Sullivan realizes that the Alliance to end Hulkamania actually succeeded? <laughs> That's a smart ass question. It's great though, because you know, you, you put 30 motherfuckers in three cages to end Hulkamania and that was his last pay-per-view until he turned and joined the NWO. So technically Kevin Sullivan's got the last laugh. Maybe we should do a deep dive. Do you think maybe on the, I, uh, I think we should get Kevin. We should get Kevin. Uh, Kevin is so much fun. I love I saw Kevin at Sarcast in Vegas, and we didn't get a chance to get together. We threatened to do it. We didn't. But in Chicago, your first Sarcast, we got to hang out a little bit, and it was so great seeing him again. He's such a cool dude. This this time, it was David Crockett. I got to hang out with David Crockett, you know, because you brought him in for Sarcast. It was so great to see David, because these are guys that I haven't seen in 20 or 25 years. But I think it'd be fun to do a podcast. We, we, we should get him on here as a guest. So let's ask him that question. 
Yeah, we'll try to get him over on Patreon sometime soon. Um, great question in here about um, Patreon. Did I ask you this one already? Nope. Because someone referenced it, and I thought, man, I think we've talked about this. Anthony Esposito says, Eric, last year on Patreon, you taught viewers how to cut a promo, and it was amazing. Would you ever train people to be a manager slash cut promos, etc.? So I guess some of our listeners may not be aware, but we have a Patreon where you can get some extra bonus content. And one of the things you do is from time to time, is you'll go live and do a little interaction, a little Q and a, and it's a much more intimate experience than just say, Hey, post a question on Twitter. You're actually giving feedback and, and reacting in real time. And you did like a little seminar on, Hey, here's what makes a good promo. Have you ever thought about holding a seminar like that or doing something like that? Yeah, I have actually. Um, you know, it, uh, I gotta, I, I'm always hesitant to answer questions like this or to talk about these things. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm shilling right away, but I actually feel like within the last five years, I've really figured out the formula, not, not the formula, a formula doesn't apply to everybody. It doesn't work for everybody. But, you know, it's like all the time I was doing it, I didn't really understand why I was good at it because I was pretty good at promos. I mean, I was, I'm not being a dick and patting myself on the back, but on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, I was I was up there. You know, I, I could cut a promo with the best of them. And I didn't really understand how or why. It, was, it came kind of second nature to me. It wasn't until actually I was in TNA when I was starting to produce other people other than me and myself, um, that I started to have to break the formula down a little bit in order to communicate it in a way that people could actually grab a hold of it and try to figure it out. And in that process of producing other people and directing other people, it started to become clearer and clearer to me that there really is a formula to it. And, and now even, you know, quite a bit after that, that was like four or five years ago, I really started thinking about that process more. I'm thinking, you know, thinking about storytelling more. Part of it is because I'm doing different things and producing television shows and, you know, a movie and things like that. So you have to start thinking differently about storytelling. That's what it all comes down to. It's all storytelling, whether it's a promo or a scene in a movie or a wrestling match or a song. And even songs have formulas. Really great songs have really distinct formulas and, and, and mechanisms that make help make them great. But the, the, I, the, I think, and it's, you know, and when I watch, and I'm not going to say who's wrestling anymore. When I watch wrestling now, um, even some of the independent things I'm watching and I'm going, Oh my God, they don't have a clue. They really, it's not that they're not good at it. They just don't know how to be good at it. And I do think about that because it's, it, it, it's frustrating for me. I'm sitting here, I'm getting excited talking about it, obviously, only because to me, it's so attainable. It's really not that hard if you think about it differently. If you go out and you do what 99% of the people that do it, I don't care if you're in the independent scene or an AEW or WWE, for the most part, unless you're a small handful of people that have already learned how to do it, you're going to memorize what you're going to say. Word for word. I don't give a fuck what Chris Jericho says. I watched him in WWE going over his scripts with Brian Gewurz. You know, so I, you know, he has the, Chris has 
obviously the ability to improv. But, and of course, when he was doing it in WWE, he was following their kind of mandate, and that's the way they did things. But the majority of people that I see go out there and they memorize their stuff. And it's just like three, two, one, go. And whether it's because they're they're forced to memorize it, because they're forced to read off a script, or because that's the only thing they really know is to memorize their stuff. They don't really put themselves into the promo. And it's really not that hard. The formula is quite simple. You have to practice it like anything else. It does, you know... It's not like somebody's going to say, okay, here's a formula, and then you're going to be able to go out and do it. But if you look at, if you look at a way to approach a promo, and I, and I don't want to play like hide-and-go-seek here. It's really simple shit for me. It's a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, if you're a baby face, you set that promo up. You're not yelling. You're not screaming because you're a baby face. You shouldn't be that hot. You should be respectful. You should be humble. You should be grateful to be there. You should start out slow and low. Don't start out screaming, because if you start out screaming, you got nowhere to go. And if you're a baby face in that, that first act of your promo, I don't care if it's a three-minute promo or a six-minute promo, whatever it is, divide it up by three. If, if you get to TV and you, they say, okay, you got six minutes. Okay, the first two minutes, you should be setting the stage as a baby face. The second two minutes, you should be putting yourself in jeopardy. Put your heel opponent over don't try to be tougher than, cooler than, smarter than, faster than, whatever than your opponent. Put yourself at risk. Put, identify the stakes. What's going to happen if you win? What's going to happen if you lose? What are your fears? How are you, how are you in jeopardy? If you're a babyface, you have to put yourself in jeopardy. If you're a babyface and you come out there and you do the road warrior, we're going to get your ass. It doesn't matter who you are. We're going to eat you alive. And then you go out and eat them alive, you're no longer a babyface. Now you're a heel. If you're a babyface, make yourself a babyface. Make people want you to win. Make them care about whether or not you achieve your goal. And what's your goal? Oh, by the way, because you've identified the stakes. You've made it personal. Everybody that's listening to you knows what's going to happen to you if you win. What's going to happen to you if you, you if you lose. And the greater and more, and, and more clear those stakes are, the more that promo is going to resonate. And then in the third act, convince everybody that you're going to do everything you possibly fucking can to make this work. But don't put yourself over at the expense of your heel opponent. If you just do those and learn. Now, I just made this sound really simple because it was a very general approach. or It was a formula. But if you learn how to cut your promos, thinking about it in those three pieces, three acts, the beginning, set yourself up, put yourself at risk. Second act, you know, what's going to happen if you win or you lose? Really identify the stakes. In the third act, tell everybody what you hope to be able to accomplish and how much you want them to be behind you. You've just cut a great fucking promo. And if you're a heel, you kind of reverse that process. And you chicken shit your way through it in, in, a, in a reverse kind of process. It's a very simple formula, but you, like any formula, you have to, you know, I can, somebody could teach me how to play Indigata de Vida, the fucking, you know, rhythm guitar. You could teach it to me. doesn't mean I can do it unless I practice and practice and practice. But I think, you know, cutting promos is such a lost art and it's so important. You know, I think one of the reasons that, not one of the, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, um, Dustin and, and Cody work so well. 
But that was that was a believable. There was backstory. It was inherent, right? They didn't have to work at it. They didn't need TV to tell that story. They could tell that story in social media, and, and they were able to to do it effectively. But that was such a great story. Stories are everything. I don't care. I mean, I'm not putting down the athleticism and, and the evolution of the in-ring product because I actually dig it. I'm not one of those old school guys that piss and moan and bitch about people not selling and all that. I'm not that guy. I dig what's going on. I really, really do. But I don't dig it so much that I'm willing to throw away the necessity of story. And telling stories is always going to be what drives any form of entertainment. I don't care if it's wrestling, movies, music, books, television commercials, selling Viagra. It doesn't fucking matter. You've got to have a great story. Well, and we hope that you guys have uh, enjoyed the great stories that Eric Bischoff has bestowed upon us today. We're going to wrap up today's Q and a episode today's ask Eric anything episode. I guess we should address, uh, we're late today because, uh, I, I didn't land until 1122 last night. So it would have been no way for us to get this done and it still be, uh, remotely enjoyable for Eric. So we had to make it happen today on Monday, but you're getting it right out of the tap today, baby. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you here next week. We ran through the entire lineup. We're going to go ahead and get that on social, uh, coming up here pretty soon, but lots of fun stuff coming your way. In the meantime, please support our sponsors. Follow us on Twitter. He is Hattie Bischoff. I am a, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. We are at 83 weeks and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.